Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Parsha podcast. We are up to Parshat Miketz. Uh, and before I introduce my guest, I want to remind the listeners that we tape this a few weeks in advance. So I hope and I pray, as I'm sure all of you, that by the time you're hearing this, the hostages have come home and security and peace has been restored to the Jewish people in the land of Israel and throughout the world. But as we are taping this now, unfortunately, that is not our situation. And uh, don't be surprised if what we talk about today will reflect some of that, because as we know, the Torah that we teach and learn is a Torah that we are living at the moment. So I want to introduce a returnee, by the way, uh, this is not his first time, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Lehner, who, in addition to being the rabbi of the Prospect Heights Shul, that's in New York City, I believe, right, John? A small little shtetl, yeah. A small little shtetl on the East Coast called New York City. He's also a faculty member of Pardes North America. And most important, he is an alum of the Pardes Institute. So we get to take credit for all of his wonderful Torah. It doesn't matter where else he learned afterwards. Uh, it's all a result <laughs> of us. So, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you could make the time. Pleasure to be on. Okay, so here we are, Parshat Miketz, and it's it's a striking Parshat almost because the camera lens shifts, right? We've been primarily with the family in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, and now the camera really focuses on Yosef and his experience in Egypt and what's going to happen to him there, and Paro's dream, and all these events that come about to bring about Yosef's prominence in Egypt— and you almost get the feeling like he's living a different story than the rest of his family. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I actually always feel that he's living another life. Even at the beginning of uh, Vayeshev, there's always kind of this difference between him and his other brothers. He's always kind of in a state of alienation from his family. And now in Galut, I think that's even exasperated more. Well, especially because we have a tradition in our book of Genesis of excluded brothers. So we as the reader, right, since we haven't read to the end yet, we, we might believe that we're looking at another Yishmael Esau story, right? That uh, Yosef is the brother who's going to be left out. And therefore, the way he's going to find his way back or the story is going to force his way back uh, to rejoin his family as a brother is part, I think, of what creates the special tension in the Parsha. Yeah, you would think they would have figured it out by now, this estranged brother scenario playing itself out. I always find that shocking, that you would imagine that Yaakov, out of all people, would kind of put an end to this continuation of the displaced child, given his own family history. Well, you know, that's striking. He he actually shows favorites, right? He gives him the coat of colors and he treats him differently. And we're thinking to ourselves, you know where this can lead. And yet, I guess this impulse or perhaps Yaakov believed he had to choose a leader. And he thought Yosef is the firstborn of Rachel is the most fit. And he's grooming him for leadership among the brothers. But either way, it's not something the brothers are too thrilled about. Definitely not. So here we have uh, Yosef in Egypt, and the story brings the brothers back, right? Because the famine that's in the land, and the brothers are forced to go get food. And lo and behold, they appear in Egypt, right? The same brothers who sold him off to slavery after deciding in their kindness not to kill him. And uh, here they appear. 
And I That's feel a like, nice way to put it, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm trying to be melamed schut, as they say, to be kind to my ancestors. And of course, I think the burning questions in front of us. Uh, one question certainly is, you know, what's going to happen now? Is Yosef going to get revenge? Is Yosef going to connect with them? What's going to be the plan? Is his family going to reunite? And of course, the other burning question, which I know you're going to address, is for all this time, why doesn't Yosef ever reach out to his father, right? Once he's prominent in Egypt, why doesn't he send a letter home or a servant back there to say, hey, guess what? You've probably been wondering where I've been. I miss you and uh, I'm still alive. I think one of the aspects of Joseph or Yosef that I've always been drawn to is that he sees himself as a part of Hashem's plan and doesn't want to interrupt it. I think there's a Gemara maybe in Brachos that says, from Yosef's story, we learn that you have to wait 22 years for a dream to come true. Well, he's critiqued, right, for trying to get help through a human way by telling the wine steward, mention me to Paro. And the Gemara, in a very strange way, says, well, he was punished with an extra couple years in prison because- right, he uh, had to serve some more time. <laughs> yeah, he didn't, he didn't rely on God. So what you're suggesting is he really took that lesson to heart, and he is somehow trusting that God's plan is going to play out, just like he told Paro God's plan is going to play out, just like he tells everybody my interpretation of dreams is from God, he's going to let what happens play out according to God's plan. Yeah, he knows he had this dream. Again, I think it's a beautiful Torah in terms of reminding us the power of dreams and holding on to them. And perhaps now, as you said, he's learned from his previous mistakes and he sees the stage is actually set for the dreams to come true. So you're suggesting the plan that he's going to put in motion is to get the fulfillment of the dreams. The family is going to bow down to him, acknowledge him as the leader and also the provider, right, with all the wheat in the fields. But he's going to try to move things around to get Binyamin there, to get Jacob there, and therefore he can't send word on ahead. He needs a different scenario because you're saying, uh, and I believe the Abarbanel says this also, he wants the dreams as prophecy to play out. Absolutely. There's also a beautiful midrash that suggests that at the moment of being thrown into the pit, everyone present took a vow to not reveal what had happened there. The brothers, Hashem, and Yosef himself. Everyone agrees to leave Yaakov in the dark. Everybody, including, I think it's a Rashi, Yitzchak himself also. So everyone knows but Yaakov, and they all agree to keep Yaakov in the dark, which of course is horrifying in a way, because what what is that going to do to poor Yosef? What does it mean for him? No one can know his story or what's happened to him. I mean, imagine being hostage or being in captivity or in a foreign place, and you actually have the capacity to reach out and say you're okay, that you're alive and not be able to do that. So what's the logic there, do you think? Why that netter? What is the Midrash trying to teach us there? Well, I think I'll come to Yosef's defense. I think he's probably my favorite character in the Torah, or at least top three. He is always desperately trying to be seen in his life. He wears this coat. Granted, he didn't make it, but he wears it. It's an attention grabber. And the whole narrative plays out of people trying to repress his own identity. He gets thrown into this pit. He can't be seen at a distance of that depth. And he gets a new name. No one can recognize him. It's this continual focus of being unseen. At least unseen as Yosef Ben Yaakov, right? He's not allowed, from what you're suggesting, it's like 
there's almost this conspiracy that Yosef, as the son of Yaakov, as a brother among these other brothers, cannot be seen. He can only be uh, the second in command of Egypt, Safnat Paneach, married to an Egyptian woman, brilliant economist, brilliant politician. But the Yosef ben Yaakov, the Yosef who's the son of Jacob and part of this family, that guy is being covered up, quite literally in a pit, and then later on through this new narrative arc of his life as an Egyptian, right? There's no accident Spielberg called the movie Prince of Egypt. No, that was about Moses. I'm sorry. But it could have been about Joseph, <laughs> there actually. There was a Disney one. There was a Disney one about <laughs> Joseph, but I don't think it was that. But either way, the idea that Yosef is almost not allowed to be. And what greater trauma could it possibly be where you can't you can't even tell your story? It's not even a question of will somebody believe it or not. It's you're not even allowed to bear witness to your own history. So when you hear that and think about that, you know, what message you think that Midrash is trying to teach us? The complicity of the brothers and Yosef and God that that Yosef is not supposed to be seen. What do you think? What's the takeaway there? What What is the Midrash trying to teach us? I wrestle with it. I find it extremely painful. Obviously, I'm not a trauma therapist, but the notion that somebody isn't able to openly talk about what they've been through, and this is a trauma. He was left to die by his brothers. I don't know how else to read the Midrash in a more favorable way. Meaning, as far as you're concerned, the Midrash is just reflecting just a horrible, painful episode. Yeah, where everyone is being sworn that it never happened. I also think there's Midrash, or maybe it's in the Gemara, that the brothers became Nazirs. They abstained from drinking wine because there was a fear, right? that if you drink wine, secrets start to come out. And they didn't want to even put themselves in a position of disclosing what had happened in any scenario. So the secrecy of Yosef's story, and the truth is, even as we read to the end, not to jump ahead a few podcasts, we never find out if Yaakov ever finds out Yosef's story, right? We never have a dialogue where Yaakov says, hey, by the way, how did you get down here? What have you been doing? I thought you were dead, but you never, you know, what happened to you? We never have that dialogue. And based on Yaakov's blessings to the brothers, where Yaakov lets him have it for all the various things that they've done, Yaakov never lets him have it for selling Joseph. I think there's a strong case we made that the netter is upheld, right? This vow is upheld. And Yosef is never allowed to tell his story or quote unquote be seen. And my only understanding or takeaway, which is a painful takeaway, is that Yosef has to literally bury his story to enable this family to move forward as a family and not be blown apart by what happened. An extreme act of self-sacrifice. Correct. Yosef has to sacrifice his identity as a a brother who was traumatized by his other brothers as a, a bro- survivor a survivor he has to give that up because to say it would make the continuing forward of this family impossible that everything would start again yaakov would curse the other brothers bless yosef and then we'd have to wait for the jewish people to start from yosef and yosef makes the ultimate sacrifice right he seems to withhold his story is never going to be fully seen for who he is in order to enable the family to continue And by the way, it's the opposite of how Jacob Yaakov processed his own events. It's not like his life was easy. He had numerous horrible events unfold, but he named a lot of his children as 
a response to what he experienced. So learning from that, and basically like there's a double message here, that the need and the importance of being seen and how sometimes we have to sacrifice our need for being seen as individuals to make a larger, as you said, a larger dream happen or come true. What is it about the need to be seen that you think is conveyed here that, that's so important? Well, I think as human beings, we just desperately want to be recognized and have our Selim Elohim seen and our full uniqueness and individuality uh, be revealed. Usually this partial also falls out on Hanukkah, right? Or precedes it. Yes. Which I think also is significant, right? There's this idea of you need extra light to be seen, right? In this time of darkness, you can't be seen. We're adding light. Uh, the mitzvah itself is very intimate also. It's done in the home. I very much think it's interconnected also to Hanukkah. Well, so I, I want to move us then in a direction I think you're raising, and that is the need for Jews to be seen as Jews, right? What is Hanukkah if not the idea that we put this menorah outside our home and identify our home as a Jewish home? And of course, the, the awareness that in the Middle Ages, Jews could not do that. And they actually moved the Hanukkah inside the home because it was dangerous to put it out outside the home. And if that's evocative for you today, do you feel that Jews want to be seen as Jews? And do you feel there's a sense that we are being told we can't do that? We won't be recognized that way. One, the idea that you brought up of having to put the menorah inside the house and not by a window as a way of kind of covering up your Jewishness feels very resonant. But as an American, I think we're going to find out tomorrow. Well, by the time you're listening to this, this will already have happened. But there's going to be this huge march in Washington that's going to take place. And the big question is, how many people are going to show up? How many people feel that they can express themselves as Jews in such a public way. And do you think, and since I'm in Israel, I can't answer this question, is it your sense that there are American Jews who are growing afraid of publicly identifying themselves as Jewish? Yeah, I think for people who wear kippahs or you know visibly express their Jewishness on a regular basis, now doesn't feel so different. You know, I'm not wearing my baseball hat more than I normally would, but I have heard that people who have been ambivalent in expressing their Jewishness in a public way previously definitely are anxious now to do so. And given that, do you think then this fear of being seen as Jewish will ultimately have negative effects on people's own sense of their identity as Jews? Like the fact that they have to cover up or hide ultimately eats away at their own sense of well-being as Jews. Absolutely. It, it will erode your inner essence over time. And I think as Jews, even before all of these events started taking place in Israel, there was a sense of we're not being seen for who we are. We're not able to express our history in a way that people can really understand it. Already people have been, you know, casting doubt on the Shoah in its memory, and people are doing the same thing for what happened on October 7th. There's this constant inability for the world to recognize who we are and what we've been through. You know, I know you have a source I'd like you to share about the dangers or the price that we pay for not being recognizable for who we are. Yeah. You know, the Aish Kodesh, who was writing in the Warsaw Ghetto, 
discusses this idea of being totally lost, right? When a person cannot even be recognized by themselves, right? That's the most extreme version is that you've even lost an understanding of who you are. Forget allowing other people to to see you. And the pain of that is enormous. And he shares a beautiful Gemara. He says in Kiddushin, the, the loser of an object must always return in search of a lost article. Obviously, this is referring to you know, something not of an identity. It's you lost your wallet, right? What's your responsibility to go back and get it? There's a whole question of can you retrieve it? Does the owner give up on it? But the Gemara says, ultimately, the person who lost something always goes back to the object to find it, no matter what. And and in this case, the Esh Kodesh is saying, the loser of the object is Hashem, is God, and we are that article. So even if we've given up hope in finding ourselves, there's an idea that Hashem will not. And therefore, we as Jews should take heart. Yeah, that if we feel that we can't even recognize ourselves anymore or can't cling to our identity, I think this is a kernel of hope that Hashem will. So the implication, which I guess is fulfilled in the Joseph story, that even if we believe, which is not clear, right, that until the brothers show up, he might have given up. Uh, Raviol Ben Nun, I think, suggests actually that Joseph believed he was the, a rejected brother, and that's why he doesn't reach out to his father. And it's only when the brothers show up, does he then say, oh, wait a minute, I actually do belong to this story, right? And I actually am part of this family and something is supposed to play out. So that echoes that idea that even if Joseph had given up on being Joseph, the son of Jacob, God doesn't give up on him and events happen so that the brothers are forced to confront him and he to confront them and have this great moment of recognition that they are indeed brothers. And he and Benjamin get to look in each other's eyes and see that they are both brothers, the children of of Jacob and uh, Rachel. Absolutely. But there is something intrinsic about Yosef in terms of being forgotten and the importance of carrying on his message. His last words, and Sefer Bereshit ends this way, is he said, do not leave my bones here. Like, take me back. Do not forget me. And then there's all these beautiful midrashim when the Jews are leaving Egypt of Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, playing hide and go seek and trying to find his bones, right? As if, we can't leave here without Joseph. I even think there's a midrash that the sea only split once Moshe showed it the bones of Yosef, as if this character, for whatever it is, is the key to our redemption. So you're suggesting is this character is constantly on the verge or edge of being pushed out. There's always a hand of God or a force that pulls him back into our story. And no matter how unrecognizable he may have become, even to himself at some point, God brings him back in. We're always reminded not to forget him. We're always remembered. And why is that? At the heart of Yosef is the dreaming spirit. Right. This idea of even though what you're seeing now doesn't match what you want it to be, this idea of believing that something will come true. And as we said earlier, it could take 22 years. Who knows? I think the idea that we have to carry this man's bones with us is telling us do not 
ever let go of this dreaming spirit. So given that then, when you look at the situation today, I feel like there's almost a double message here. On the one hand, you're offering a message of caution that when we have to cover up who we are to others, we run the risk of becoming unrecognizable even to ourselves, right? If you if you don't wear that kippa and you always wear the baseball cap, at a certain point, when you look in the mirror, you also see the person in the baseball cap and you start to lose that piece of who you are. That it's not so simple the old adage, be a man in the street and a Jew in the home, that's not so simple. And to pretend to have this almost this veneer of, well, I'm like everybody else for the outside world, but then to have a profound Jewish identity inside, that's hard to do. It's hard to live that double life. We want to be recognized and seen for who we are, and not just by fellow Jews, but by everybody. And if we're not, that can lead us down a path of being unrecognizable to ourselves. Absolutely. I'll say one point on that. In the diaspora, people are ripping down these posters that we've put up of the kidnapped hostages, right? And I think the response of people seeing the videos taking it down is so visceral because it, again, emphasizes this idea of these people don't want to see us or recognize who we are. Literally, they're ripping us down. Yeah. And The flip side, though, which I'm somewhat encouraged by, is your belief that in the end, even if we become unrecognizable to ourselves, God will still come looking for us. That there's a certain spirit of hopefulness, of a dream for something better that doesn't get extinguished. Yeah. I also think a lot about Avram Avinu and his journey in terms of holding on to this kernel of hope. Everything that he was promised in his life did not reflect that, right? He's told, I'm, you're going to have all these kids, more than the stars. He couldn't have a child for years, right? He's told he's going to get this great land of Israel. And then every story is him being in conflict with his neighbors, right? So all these promises, these dreams never are fulfilled in his life, yet he's so convinced that they will. So here you are now after October 7th, and are you still hopeful. I'm asking that in the sense that I know for myself this last month or so, it's been very difficult for precisely that reason. This sense of when is it going to get better? When is are we going to be in a better place? It just feels like it's it's just always going to be difficult. There, there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be this sense that the world will not allow us to be who we want to be and to build what we want to build. How do you stay hopeful that you know it's going to come? It's going to happen. By the way, I, I go back and forth a lot. I shouldn't say my my faith is resolute always. The situation at times feels totally overwhelming. I look to this story of Yosef in the sense of he ultimately is the person who reveals himself to his brothers, right? It's not like somebody discloses it. He is responsible for outing himself, so to speak. And I think that puts responsibility and I would say ownership and agency for us Jews in terms of reclaiming our own narrative, which is we can't, especially us in the diaspora, we can't control the narrative in the news and how everything is unfolding. The one thing we can do is say who we are as Jews and continue to live by our values and our mission and to not in any way back down from our moral conviction. So even if things out there are not looking good, you're out there every day telling your congregation, telling your students, telling everybody, we're going to stick with the plan. We are going to continue moving forward. We're going to continue proclaiming our identity. We're going to continue telling our story. And if they want to hear, they'll hear. 
If they don't want to hear, they won't hear, but we're not going to stop being who we are and representing what we represent. And that was my opening words I said to my community, the Shabbat, after the events uh, for Shabbat Bereshit. I said, right now, it's easy to stand by Israel, right? Because at that time, we still had so much of the world sympathy, or we had it for 48 hours. Yeah, that was that was a good two days. It was a good two days, right? And so I said, it's easy right now, right? But the test is going to be as this goes on, can we still stand with Israel? And we have to. And I think for some people, it has become harder because the public pressure is mounting and people can have doubts of what is going on. And I think the test for my fellow rabbis in the diaspora is to help give that over to our congregants that we cannot lose faith in who we are as a people and our moral clarity. Okay. Well, I'm a little encouraged. I'm glad there are people like you out there telling all those people. It's a difficult and challenging time. But I think what you said is helpful in the sense that, you know, that that's the test of emunah, that even if it's not happening right in front of you to believe that it's going to happen. And that's apparently what Yosef had, which is what enabled him, even after being apart from his family for so long, to still climb back into the family story and ultimately sustain the family as they come to Egypt and reclaim his relationship with his father and become a tribe among these other tribes and not to react vindictively or hatefully and blow the whole thing up. Uh, Let me interrupt you for one second and just say, imagine if you took a, you freeze the frame when Yosef is in the pit. You take a picture. You say, how is this man's life going to play out? Is there any way that you could see him rising to the top of Egypt, right? And then actually being the savior. You'd be like, no way. That seems impossible. And I think that ultimately is going to be the message for us, which is you freeze frame October 7th and you say, is there any way we can recover from this? We're in the depths, the lowest part. For me, I'm looking to this story as a way of having faith that that can happen. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. Rabbi Leiner promises everything's <laughs> going to be okay. Uh, and I'm glad. <laughs> we need someone to promise that. Look, I, I hear your point that even when you're in the pit, all you can do, I guess, is choose that something better can come. Because what's your alternative, really? You're, it's either that or giving up and not living. And Yosef chooses to live, right? And he chooses to, to build a life. And he chooses to try. And he chooses to try to do good things in the world. And he ultimately chooses to, to reclaim his family. And so I guess we have to hold on to that and realize that there are going to be moments where we are in the pit. And it feels very hopeless. And there's a lot of despair. But the, the reason we tell this story, and I guess Hanukkah is another example, we go from darkness to light, right? This belief that even when you're in the darkness, the possibility of light is there. And uh, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's, it's easy to have that when things are good. And it's so hard. It's so hard to open yourself up to that when things are bad, instead of just saying, I'm just going to sit in the pit. I don't want to leave the pit. I'm just going to stay in the pit. But you're telling us no pits for us. We got to continue no pits on. for us. And, you know, normal years when you light the menorah, at least in New York, you don't think anything about it. You just put it up right by your window. And unfortunately, this year, there'll be a moment of, I think, anxiety or hesitation. But ultimately, I think the power of 
putting it by the window this year is going to magnify the importance of everything we're trying to do here. Wow. Well, all I can say is uh, let that be a tefillah, a prayer for the well-being of Jews in New York and elsewhere, and certainly a tefillah for the Jews, the land of Israel, and certainly for the soldiers who are fighting and, of course, the hostages who hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, will be reunited with their families. Thank you, Jonathan Lehner, very, very much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope and I pray again, the next time I see you, we're going to be smiling. How Remember how hard Amen. things were then and look how wonderful they are now. So thank you Amen. very much for your encouragement and your strength. And, you know, besurot tovot, as they say, may there be good tidings in our future. Okay, everybody, on behalf of uh, John and myself, I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom and, uh, you know, health and well-being and all those good things. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.